as valuable as adventure sports are and as much as they can improve life and as much as they can improve community and as much as they can just benefit us in a lot of different ways, there are dangers, inherent risks involved in adventure sports. Episode 315, Kurt talks about the dangers of adventure sports and how to mitigate them. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Adventure Sports Podcast again today. Kurt here. I'm really excited to share today's show with you. Normally, we have a wonderful guest on our show that we interview about different aspects of adventure, about different adventure sports, about how to do adventure. Today, it's a solo show. You just got me. And I want to tell you in advance, I don't do these shows unless I feel like there's something worth sharing that would truly be valuable to our adventure audience. And so it takes weeks, sometimes even months, before I come across a subject that I think is worth sharing. Today I have another one for you, and I've entitled it, How Dangerous is Adventure? The reason is, we are always promoting adventure sports as a way to enlarge your life, to become healthier, to become inspired, to do better things even away from adventure, to make better health decisions throughout your life, not just when you're doing an adventure you know, to make better friends, to build community, to find ways to reach out and help your fellow humans, right, with all the needs that are on the planet. And we're always promoting adventure sports. Now, some people would say, you're just promoting hedonism. After all, don't you say every time, get out there and have some fun? Isn't it just all about fun? Well, yes and no. Fun is the positive feedback that we get for getting out there, connecting with nature, getting physically active, and doing something we really enjoy doing. But it's not just about the fun. Even though the fun alone, I think even fun alone, is a worthwhile reason to go do adventure sports. But it's really not all about the fun. It is about the health. It is about how it enlarges your life and changes your perspective and how you can learn so much about yourself. You can grow physically, emotionally, spiritually, You name it, adventure sports have real value. Matter of fact, I did a whole show on this, which was back on episode... Boy, I have a lot of notes today. Here, all the paper rattle. Here we go. Episode number... 246. Sorry, it took me a second. Episode number 246, The Value of Adventure Sports. I encourage you to listen to that show before you listen to this one. And the reason is because today I'm talking about the other side of the story, the danger of adventure sports. And I don't want to make people think it's just too dangerous, it's not worth it. The reality is the dangers can be mitigated and the dangers actually aren't as high as a lot of people would assume. But if you don't understand the benefits, then the 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 cost-benefit analysis gets a little bit skewed. Just say it that way. The cost-benefit analysis gets a little bit skewed. So go back to episode 246. You can find that on adventuresportspodcast.com. Listen to that one, and then come back and listen to this one. And I think this one will make a whole lot more sense. So before I dive into the main subject, though, I have a couple of things I want to talk to you about. First, 
We interview a lot of adventurers, explorers, athletes who share their uh, their knowledge that they've gained, their experience by writing books. And sometimes the books are humorous and entertaining. Sometimes they're stories. Sometimes they're how-to guides. But we often interview people that have written books. And it's not that they are authors first and adventurers second. Usually it's the other way around. They do a great adventure and then they write a book about it because they want to share it with everybody. And the books help to support what they're doing. Not just adventures, but you'll find these people are reaching out and helping others. And so the books are a way to invest in all the good that they're doing for our fellow humans around the world. So I thought, you know what, we hardly go back and talk about those books. I wanted to remind you, while you've been listening, you've heard recently, I'm not even going to go back, we're talking about scores and scores of, of books by now on the Adventure Sports Podcast, but I'm going to cover just the last few that we've done in the last few weeks to remind you that those books are there, and maybe you want to pick one or two up for some of your winter reading. So here we go. Starting most recently, Anna McNuff just released her new book, The Pants of Perspective. And this is her account of running the length of both islands of New Zealand on trail. And this was one of the early adventures she did. She also biked through the all 50 U.S. states. She's done a variety of adventures. Her most recent show, of course, was about bike touring with Faye Shepard through South American Andes. Just an amazing adventure and a really good writer. The Pants of Perspective is a really fun book, like I said, about New Zealand. She uh, She's not afraid to share, oh, how silly she was and some of the, the crazy decisions and the way that she took on this challenge. But she also shares a day-by-day, play-by-play of her experiences when she was doing this amazing adventure. The people she met along the way. Um, you know, how challenging it was to get through each day's run, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I've been reading the book. It's delightful. So Anna McNuff's The Pants of Perspective. Next, if you go back a few episodes, Jerry Hall, Downhills Don't Come Free. This is his account of riding a bike from Alaska all the way down to Mexico. And he did this solo, and he did this after a, a long career in business and he decided that it was a way that he could stretch himself to grow himself as, a, as an individual. One of his theories is one that I agree with. You're either growing or you're dying. There's no coasting in this life, really. We're either improving and learning more or we're forgetting more or, or getting in worse shape or we're getting into better shape. So he decided he wanted a new challenge. And so his challenge was the solo bike ride from Alaska to Mexico. Lots of really funny accounts of his adventure And uh, we read several sections on the Adventure Sports Podcast episode that he did with us. Really great book. So again, that's Jerry Hall, Downhills Don't Come Free. Next up would be Phoebe Smith. Now, Phoebe has written tons of books, and they're all about camping and about wild sleeping or extreme sleeping and... uh, let me give you, that's, I guess, boy, one, two, three, four, five, six. I'm seeing seven books listed on our website. They are Extreme Sleeps, Wild Nights, Wilderness Weekends, The Book of Bothy, The Joy of Camping, The Camper's Friend, and The Petter's Way and Norfolk Coast Path. These books are uh, really great kind of how-to guides on how to get started in sleeping in wild places, in camping, in packing, 
Phoebe started out uh, just deciding that she was going to spend one night off in the wilderness by herself. And that was an amazing challenge for her. And it actually got her a lot of ridicule from friends and family who said, that's not safe. It's dangerous. Why would you do such a thing? And so that first night was just an amazing experience for her. But what was so cool about it is that it opened up a whole world of adventure to her. And it went from nearly sleeping in her backyard to traveling around the world and sleeping in more and more extreme places and then writing books about it and how it's impacted her life. And if you go back and hear that show, you'll hear us talking a lot about how even the simplest of adventures can really make life different. They give us perspective. They give us a change of pace. Matter of fact, one of the things I like best about adventure is it kind of acts as a as a milepost in our memory. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you're going through a daily grind, day-to-day, day-to-day, similar things are happening every day and you're just getting through them, you fall into a routine. And then when we reflect back on those sections of time, it's really hard to remember individual days or even how old we were when this happened or that happened. It just kind of all blends together. But when you sprinkle in adventures in your life, then those adventures stand out. They're not part of the routine. And as a result, you remember those. And those adventures became kind of the signpost in your, in your memory to, uh, to kind of mark the different stages of life and, and things that you've experienced. I think that having a treasure chest full of memories is one of the most valuable investments, one of the most valuable treasures that you can have, wonderful memories that you can share. Okay, next author, let's see, Brian Snyder, Falling Off the Map. Brian has written several books as well as most recent Falling Off the Map is more about his adventures primarily in the United States. He does a lot of writing about um, adventures in the Western U.S. especially. Brian Snyder has a really humorous style, and he writes anecdotes about um, kind of his, uh, well, let me say it this way. Each chapter is is like a one self-contained adventure. So it's a great book when you want to just read a little at a time, maybe before you drift off to sleep at night, something like that to remind you that adventure is out there for everybody. And uh, Brian has a habit of doing adventures, whether he quite has all the gear or not, whether he's quite fully prepared or not, because he knows that he can sort it out and figure out a way to get through the challenges. And it makes for humorous and delightful anecdotes. So Brian Snyder falling off the map. Uh, here's another one for you. Elspeth Beard. I loved visiting with Elspeth when we had her on. Elspeth's book is Lone Rider. And back in the 80s, as a young lady, she decided to ride around the planet by herself on a motorcycle. And she was doing that at a time when people weren't really doing that yet. You know, it's still a big deal when someone does some sort of a circumnavigation of the globe on motorcycle. It's awesome. But she was doing it, um... Before the modern day made it so easy, and she was doing it as a solo female, a young woman, had amazing, amazing experiences all around the globe. Really enjoyed that episode. Go back and and listen to that episode if you'd like to learn more, but also get the book Lone Rider by Elspeth Beard. You know, we also have on the Adventure Sports Podcast website, we have a bookstore link. And we need to get some of these books on there. We need to update that. But if you click that, then you'll see another collection of books from other writers 
that have been on the show as well. Matter of fact, if you go to Amazon through that bookshelf link and you buy one of the books there, then we get a tiny little you know kickback from Amazon. It's not much, but it is a way that you can help to support the Adventure Sports Podcast. Now, whether you get that book through us or you go to your local bookstore, you go directly to the author, however it is that you decide to get the book, it's all good. The bottom line is we want to make sure that you know that those books are out there. And if you're looking for some entertaining and informative reading, then by all means, pick up one of these books from the people that have been on the Adventure Sports Podcast. Okay, I wanted to get that out there. wanted you guys to remember the books, remember the authors. I mean, they were kind enough to come on the show it takes a lot of uh, a lot of effort, takes a significant amount of time and some real guts to get on a podcast like this and share your world with everybody else. So thanks to the authors and and uh, make sure you do pick up some of their books. All right, I'd like to jump into the main topic now, talking about the danger of adventure, and I think this matters because as valuable as adventure sports are, and as much as they can improve life. And as much as they can improve community, and as much as they can just benefit us in a lot of different ways, there are dangers, inherent risks involved in adventure sports. And some people think that adventure is just crazy dangerous. Other people look at it and they think, oh, there's probably not any much danger there at all unless you do something stupid. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. What I did today is I gathered statistics from the internet, and I tried to find sources that were at least somewhat reputable. I did not try to uh, vet every source of information to make sure it's 100% accurate, but I did try to grab sources that at least put some energy into trying to be accurate in their stats about how dangerous various activities are. And so I'm going to let you know in advance that that's where the data comes from, and I'll cite some of the sources. But the bottom line is I'm trying to get a general feel for how dangerous or quote-unquote safe various adventure sports are. I'm also going to interleave some stories from my own stupid mistakes and adventures. And I'm only doing that because we don't have a guest here to share their stories. So I'm sorry you're going to be stuck with mine, but Maybe we can have fun with that, and that way there will be a little bit more entertainment value as well as educational value for sorting out the true danger of adventure sports. First thing I want to talk about is mitigating risk. And the reason is because all of these sports could be very, very dangerous, or they can be not that dangerous at all. And I'm going to just say in advance, the word safe, I put in quotation marks, because I'm not sure that, you know, I mean, what is safe? I'm not sure that anything could be considered safe. In life, we're always taking risk. One risk is sitting at a desk job for 20 years and becoming increasingly unhealthy. People would say, well, there is no risk involved with working at a job. That's a good thing to do, sitting at a desk, getting some work done. It's a safe place. But there's a lot of risk involved with that in a lot of different ways. There's risk in uh, drinking a glass of milk. Not only could you choke on it, but there could be something in the milk. You know, whatever it is, we mitigate risk throughout life. So instead of thinking in terms of safe and not safe, I want to think in terms of relative risk, and mitigated risk. So, for example, 
if I was on the first story uh, rooftop of a house. Now, if the, the roof isn't steep, then maybe I'm fairly safe to stand up there. But does that mean that I'm safe to try to dance some sort of a jig? Well, maybe not. Does that mean that I'm safe to stand up there when it's icy? Well, probably not. Does it mean that I'd be safe to jump off of the roof? Well, probably not. But is it relatively safe to go down the ladder? Well, ladders aren't necessarily safe. There are all sorts of OSHA-required courses on the proper way to use a ladder. Why? To mitigate the risk involved with a ladder. But we all know that if you use a ladder correctly and you're careful when you're on a rooftop, you've mitigated the majority of the risk. You're not likely to get hurt. And if you want to go the extra step, you can use fall protection to make sure that you don't fall off the roof. I don't want to go on too much about this except to say that adventure sports are all the same way. It doesn't matter how relatively low risk the sport is or relatively high risk the sport is, you can mitigate that risk through education, experience, the use of proper equipment used in the proper way by making sure that you have the right the right weather that you're doing it at the right time, that you're rested when you're doing it, that you are mentally prepared for for the sport that you're doing. All of these things come together to mitigate the risk. I mean, we're all familiar with this. We hear reports from the Center of Disease Control or the World Health Organization telling us that X, Y, or Z is now the latest found carcinogen that you should avoid or you're going to get cancer or that there are this many deaths from the common flu this year versus previous years, all that kind of stuff, they provide us with statistics that help us to understand what risks are for some of the things that we do in life. Well, that's what I'm doing today. Same thing. I want to share how risky some activities are and then talk a little bit about mitigating risk. And so keep in mind, my statistics are somewhat blind. And what I mean by that is that I know how many people died, based on my sources, doing some adventure sport. What I don't know is if that person was trained, if that person was using good judgment, if that person was being stupid, if that person was was taking unnecessary risks because they wanted that higher degree of danger or thrill. So I guess the point is we have really mixed statistics. Uh, Let's do one example. I'm just going to randomly grab one here. Um, How about mountaineering? Mountaineering statistics. uh, We have a risk factor for 14er climbing, which I'll cover in more detail in a little bit, but it's one death out of every 50,000 hikers. Now, why did that person die? Did that one person die because they committed suicide? Sorry to bring it up, but it happens. People actually commit suicide on mountaintops. It does happen. Did that one death happen because of circumstances beyond the hiker's control? Or did that one death happen because the hiker was just doing something stupid? And believe me, I've done stupid things on 14ers. Matter of fact, I have a story about that. So people do get hurt. But I just want to point out that when people get hurt, some percentage of that was unnecessary death. Unnecessary defined as they they could have avoided it with just a little bit 
of caution. With a little bit of forethought, they wouldn't have died. And I think what you'll find is that most of the time that is the case. Most deaths that happen in adventure sports could totally have been avoided. They could have been avoided with a little bit more care. We hear often of people that get hurt doing adventure sports, not when they're doing what would be considered the dangerous part, but it's once the dangerous part is over and they let their guard down, then a mistake happens. And that's, it's the mistake, once they let their guard down, that actually uh, creates the, the, the most injury or death. And I want everyone to understand that in some adventure sports, you cannot let your guard down. For instance, um, if you're riding motorcycles, you shouldn't ride so long that you kind of go asleep at the handlebars, so to speak. You don't want to numb out and start riding without paying attention to what you're doing. And people do that. They ride too long, and then it gets increasingly dangerous. They're blindsided with an unexpected event they're not prepared for, and their reaction time is poor, and as a result, there's an injury or worse. Um, That's just one example. Don't ride your motorcycle too long. But people will go, for instance, they'll ride a dirt bike on single track with huge exposure, large cliffs, and they're up there tearing it up for several hours, and they've taken a lot of what people would consider to be significant risks, but they were on. They were spot on. They were paying attention. They were, they were managing the risk the whole time. And then they get on the pavement. It's time to go back home again. And they think, oh, I'm not on the mountain anymore. And of course, they let their guard down. That's when they're actually in the most danger because now they're, they're going through a familiar scenario, going through traffic on predictable surfaces in predictable uh, conditions and they let the guard down, and that's when people get hurt. So with all of these statistics I'm going to talk about today, I think the, one of the main takeaways is a lot of these people got hurt because they did something stupid or they let their guard down, and we all do it from time to time. So I'm not blaming them, but it is a reminder to us to not do that. Uh, and I'd like to throw out there just driving. If you're driving so long at the wheel that you forget the last 10 miles, maybe it's time to pull over and take a break. Walk around the car, stretch, breathe, wake up a little bit. Don't allow yourself to be a zombie behind the wheel. That's the same thing with adventure sports. We don't need zombies out there. We need people that are spot on, having fun, being safe, and reaping all the benefits of the sports. Fall is the best time to start thinking snow, and Bentgate Mountaineering is ready to help you get prepared for your epic winter. Come check out the latest in Alpine Touring, Telemark, NTN, and Splitboarding gear. Brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammoth, Solomon, Vole, Never Summer, Jones, and BCA. And you need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags, and they are ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. You can also rent skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes at Bentgate. What's more, they host free demo ski days at local resorts so you can try out the latest gear. Stop by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado, or go to bentgate.com to check out your new gear as well as to get updates on all of their events.
So, I've talked a lot about that, but let's dive into some of these. I think uh, I'm doing these kind of in no particular order, but just so you understand the format, I'm going to talk about a sport and the stats about how dangerous it is a little bit, and then I'm going to share an anecdote of something stupid I did just as a way to let you guys know what not to do, right? What not to do in the woods, for instance. And then we'll come back to another stat. But I want to compare all of these statistics to a couple of things that pretty much involve all of us. They kind of normalize these statistics so we have some context. So here's a a statistic I think is really important. Motor vehicle crashes. So in 2016, there were 40,000 deaths in the United States from motor vehicle crashes. How many of those were avoidable? Who knows? All of them probably. Uh, or, or nearly all of them, right? But somebody made a mistake. Poor judgment, fell asleep at the wheel, drunk driving, their vehicle was in ill repair. Whatever the cause was, 40,000 deaths. Now, if you do the math on that, that's one out of 10,000 people that live in the United States. And if you live in the United States, you're getting in vehicles fairly often. That means you have a one out of 10,000 chance of dying this year because you're in a vehicle. One out of 10,000. I I think that risk is actually fairly high. One out of 10,000. But here's another one. 4.6 million serious injuries from motor vehicle crashes in the United States. That's roughly one out of 100. And just so you know on these statistics, I did the math and then I kind of rounded them to the nearest number so that we can kind of understand how it works. I mean, instead of one out of 100, it might have been 0.89 out of 100. I don't remember what the number was, but just beware. I'm giving us a general feel for relative risk. Um, I'm not pretending to be a statistician here. If you want to dive into exact statistics with error bars and standard deviations and all that kind of stuff, that's not what this show's about. Not going to go there. But with one out of 100 people getting a serious injury, a serious injury from motor vehicle crashes. So that kind of gives us some context. So when we look at an adventure sport, is it more dangerous or less dangerous than being in a car? Uh, Here's another one for you. And this is one of the most shocking stats that I'll share today. I want to apologize to you doctors and nurses out there, to the healthcare practitioners. I'm not trying to make you look bad with this. I'm merely stating the estimated facts The source on this one is uh, Johns Hopkins. It's hopkinsmedicine.org. When I first heard this statistic, it was probably 20 years ago. It hasn't changed that much. It was shocking to me, and I thought, could that really be true? But as I've looked it up since then, it's fairly consistently true. And it's, uh, it's a sad statistic, but this is the number of people who die in the U.S. each year from medical mistakes. Now, this is is not full-blown malpractice in a lot of cases. This is uh, just a a simple mistake. And here's an example. Uh, I have a friend who had a very, very painful illness, hospitalized. Her husband was there in the room. A nurse came in, and they were using morphine to mitigate the pain because it was a really, really painful condition. And so the nurse administered the correct dose of morphine intravenously and then left the room. Didn't mark it on the chart. That was the mistake. There is a shift change, and 10 minutes later, another nurse walks in, looks at the chart, and says, oh, it's time for the morphine. Starts to administer the intravenous morphine again. My friend's husband said, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. She just 
had that. The mistake was just, it's just so simple that the nurse was distracted and didn't write down the time of the last dose. And the husband caught it. Now that double dose of morphine may or may not have killed his wife, but that's a powerful drug that can kill. That's the kind of thing that healthcare practitioners work so hard to not allow to happen, to mitigate, right? But it still happens. And I have, I have to throw this out there. There are 250,000 to somewhere greater than that number. Some estimates run as high as 400,000 medical mistake fatalities every year in the United States. That is one out of a thousand people in the United States each year die from medical mistakes. And these are well-meaning practitioners who are healing people. They're healing people. They're saving lives. But mistakes happen. And it's scary. But it's true. One out of 1,000, depending on how you do the math, but roughly one out of a thousand people in the United States each year die by medical mistakes. Now, keep in mind, that includes everybody who never even went to a doctor, never went to a hospital. They're part of the denominator in that function there. So what's the function of people that die who are under substantial medical care? I don't even know what that is. But the point is that you, right now in the United States, whether you are under a doctor's care or not, right now, you have a 1 in 1,000 chance of dying from a medical mistake this year. That blows my mind. It is the third highest cause of death in the United States, uh, right behind heart disease and cancer. Heart disease, cancer, medical mistakes. Wow. Okay, so those are our two uh, standards of comparison. So the one is motor vehicle deaths, one out of 10,000, and medical mistakes, one out of 1,000. These are things that are pretty common and things that are there for a good reason that people would not consider adventure sports, but we'll use that kind of as a standard of comparison. Okay, so what would be our first sport? And my apologies, there's, there's not enough time nor enough interest probably for me to cover every sport. So I just uh, grabbed a handful that I thought of that I thought might be kind of interesting. Let's start with, how about road biking? Road biking in the United States. Best estimates that I could find were that there are 800 deaths per year from road biking that involve another motor vehicle. So that means that normally a biker is getting hit by a car, right? And that's 800 deaths per year. That information came from pedbikeinfo.org, and they also report that there are 2.5 million bikers out there, roughly. So... The uh, If you do the math, that comes to about one in two million. So if you are a road biker, you've got about a one in two million chance of getting wiped out by a car. Now, one in two million, people here see the one and they think, holy cow, that's scary. But one in two million, that's pretty good. That's pretty low. But you can mitigate that risk by choosing the roads that you're on, by making sure that you have proper lighting on your bike, by wearing clothing that's highly visible, by making sure that you're in the right frame of mind, that you're paying attention to the traffic around you, you could probably mitigate that risk by 50 to 75% or more just by your own behaviors. So that one in 2 million could become one in 10 million, right? And that's kind of the idea behind all of these. There's some inherent risk. You can probably make it much, much safer through your own practices. Let me give you an example, okay, from my own life. I told you I'd give you some anecdotes. I used to do a lot of road biking, really enjoy it. 
Um, it's, it's just such a beautiful, wonderful way to see this world. I love touring by bicycle. I used to do something stupid. I would look behind me and I would see cars coming on a, you know, on a two-lane road. They're going to pass within inches of me at full highway speed. And if there was no one behind the car that was coming, I liked to swerve behind that car and catch the slipstream. If it was a semi, I love that suction that would pull me along a little bit. Even a truck, any sort of a sizable vehicle, I could get a pretty good boost in my pedaling by swerving behind where they were after they went by. So one day I was on a two-lane road and there was a car passing me pretty darn fast and it was a truck and I thought, man, I'm going to swerve behind this guy. Once again, stupid, right? This is Kurt being stupid. He was pulling a boat. So just before I swerved behind him, I saw something in my peripheral vision and I corrected myself just in time as the boat went screaming by and this guy was hauling probably 60 to 70 miles per hour. Okay, stupid idea. Don't swerve behind vehicles to slipstream them when you're road biking. Okay, it should go without saying, I did it, it was dumb. Here's another one. Semi went by with big tanker truck, and semis are tough. Man, they blow a strong wind, which you can feel buffeting your car even, driving down the highway. When you're on a you know, a road bike, it's so light, man, it can sure knock you around. You've got to be on your game. And that semi, they generally try to get far over. They try not to pass too fast, but sometimes there's oncoming traffic. So a tanker truck went by me, and I got sucked under the tank of the tanker truck. So the front dual wheels went by, and I, I got sucked under the tank, and I immediately swerved back out, and the rear dual wheels went by. Wow. Scared me to death. What could I have done differently then? I'm not sure. Maybe I could have chosen a road that had a better shoulder. Maybe when I saw what was coming up with this this truck coming and oncoming traffic, maybe I should have just gone ahead and rolled off the road, tried to stop for a second. I'm not sure what the best the best scenario would have been there, but I do know, especially if there's a crosswind involved, watch out because these things happen. So that's road biking deaths. Uh, let's choose another one here. Oh, by the way, I tried to find stats on mountain biking deaths. And the reason was because, obviously, I love mountain biking so much, and they're not 18-wheelers going by at 65 miles an hour if you're on single track in the woods. So the question then becomes, well, how dangerous is that? Because the terrain is more challenging, and you're, you're attempting to do things in more extreme conditions, as a rule, than you do on a road bike, but without the traffic. And I actually couldn't find a very good stat on that. A lot of injuries on mountain bikes don't even go reported. Uh, And that's because, you know, they're not worthy of going to see a doctor, so to speak. Uh, If someone dies, obviously that that information is collected, but uh, I just couldn't find a source that could give it to me reliably. I did find anecdotal information, though, where people, through their own experience, compared the two. And uh, I think the general consensus is, Mountain biking is in more dangerous terrain, but overall a safer sport. And the reason is you don't have the traffic, you're going much more slowly, and if you do crash, you're more likely to have minor injuries than to die, right? But you get hit by a semi, there's not much chance of surviving that. So um, mountain biking, I would say, in my estimate, and based on the research I did, mountain biking is somewhat safer than road biking. Okay, now let's compare that for a minute. 
is road biking or mountain biking. Are those more dangerous or less dangerous than a motor vehicle crash, than using a car? Well, the car is one in 10,000. So using a car is somewhere on the order of, so do the math here, uh, motor vehicle deaths, one out of 10,000. Road biking deaths, one out of 2 million. So if you divide the 2 million by 10,000, you get 200. So that means that based on just the numbers, rough estimates here, using a car, driving to work, whatever you're doing, going to see your friends is 200 times more dangerous than road biking. Hmm. I think that's kind of surprising, isn't it? And please don't forget that living in the United States gives you one out of a thousand chance of dying from a medical mistake. It's uh, 2,000 times safer than living in the United States in general. Okay, next one. People that do adventure sports often find themselves outside. Most adventure sports are done in the great outdoors, and weather is always a factor. And so I was curious, what about lightning strikes? People are always concerned about lightning strikes, as they should be. It's dangerous. But how many lightning strikes are there per year? Well, uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric... There's a mouthful. NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, report 51 deaths per year on average based on the last 20 years due to lightning strikes. And keep in mind, a lot of people get struck by lightning that don't die. These are only the deaths. So 51 per year and I divided that number by the U.S. population, and you come up with about a death and a half per 10 million from lightning strikes. So how likely are you to get struck by lightning? People often say that, well, I'd be more likely to get struck by lightning than that one. Well, I'm not so sure. Your odds of getting struck by lightning are very, very low, and part of the reason for that is not many people are out there in the middle of a lightning storm, right? So if you are someone who frequents playing in lightning storms, then I'm sure your risk is much higher than that. But that's easily mitigated now, isn't it? Stay out of the lightning. Get off the mountains before the storms hit. Stay out of lightning's way. And then you don't have to become one of those statistics. But it's kind of nice to know. 1.5 out of 10 million. Now, I wish I could say that I've not been at risk for that. But I do have a story about that, too. I went climbing with a friend, and she and I climbed up on top of a peak a fair amount above tree line. We're probably around 12.5. Beautiful blue sky day. Gorgeous. We were just enjoying the scenery, the high mountain, alpine tundra, beautiful vistas in all directions, walking along, and there was a tiny little cloud coming across the valley. Just this little thing. Not a big storm. Just a little cloud. But it was moving fairly quickly. And it happened to go straight over our heads. And guess what? It had enough energy in it that there was a lightning strike from this one cloud down onto our mountaintop within probably 50 yards of us. And I don't know if it knocked me down or I jumped to the ground. But the next thing I knew, I was lying flat on the ground. And so was the, the gal that I was hiking with. Neither of us was injured, but that's how close it was. On a bluebird, sunny day. If you spend enough time outside doing adventures, you're going to see some very rare things happen. It just does happen. And they're amazing and remarkable. And most of the time you don't get hurt. Luckily, we weren't hurt by that. But that's how easy it can be. So 
I've also been in places where the storms are rolling in in mass, and I'm trying to get out of lightning's way, and I've had lightning leaving the clouds and striking the mountain below me. So that's a very ugly feeling when you see the lightning go from over your head to below your feet and hitting the ground repeatedly. Believe me, we got out of there. But that's what can happen. Okay, how about back to the 14ers? Since I was talking about mountains, let's just do the 14ers. One in 50,000 chance of death is the number that I came up with for the 14ers. And I mentioned that earlier. That is from the seasons from 2010 to 2016. There were 46 14er deaths. So let's see, in seven years, 46 deaths on 14ers in Colorado. And then I said, well, how many people are actually climbing? You don't want to divide that by the U.S. population because obviously most people don't climb. So how many climbers were there? And I went to the American Alpine Club. I went to uh, other mountaineering organizations. And there are several uh, organizations that tried to put together estimates of how many people are on the mountains. The lowest estimate is 150,000 climbers a year on these mountains. That's pretty wild. That's a lot of people. That's the most conservative lowest estimate. The higher estimate is 500,000. But the people that collected that data even felt that that number was too high because when you divide the number of 14ers in climbing days, then that's just more people on the mountain than you normally see. So they felt like that was too high. But an estimate that seemed to be kind of middle of the road and probably closer to correct was 350,000 14er climbers in Colorado each year. Now that alone blows my mind. I didn't know it was that popular. And the reason is because I don't see that many people on the mountains. But hey, it is a popular sport, and it's, it's a risky sport. But again, you can mitigate the risk. So how dangerous is climbing 14ers then? Well, that 46 divided by 350,000 gives us roughly that 1 in 50,000 chance of dying on a 14er. And what you might find interesting is the majority of those deaths happen on about 5 or 6 14ers. And the, the ones that are ranked up there as most dangerous are, of course, Long's Peak, Capital, North and South Maroon, uh, Kit Carson, and I, th- I believe uh, Pyramid, and then a Crestone Peak, Crestone Needle, I guess. I, I think those are the ones that they listed as where the majority of deaths happen. So the reality is most of the deaths are on five, maybe six or seven 14ers, and the remainder of the 14ers haven't seen deaths in, in years and years and years and years and years. So if you're careful, if you mitigate the risk, if you use your scruples a little bit, then climbing 14ers can be a relatively safe activity. One out of 50,000, though, that is way higher than our 1.5 out of 10 million for a lightning strike. So people start saying, well, there's some risk in mountaineering then. One out of 50,000. But let's compare that. Is that more dangerous or less dangerous than driving a car? You probably remember better than I did. The risk of death in being in a car is 1 out of 10,000. So um, being in a car is five times riskier than climbing 14ers. What about the medical stats? Ooh, this one just is so disturbing. It just, just seems unbelievable. But uh, living in the United States with the chance that you might go under medical care is 50 times more dangerous than climbing the 14er. Hmm. That's just shocking to me. This episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast is brought to you by 180TAC.com. 
180 Tech manufactures premier backpacking and emergency products. Whether you need a backpacking stove for your week-long trek on the trail or an emergency stove for your bug-out bag, we have the tools you need. Visit www.180tack.com. So since we all drive cars and we all need medical care from time to time, you know, we're all under those risks already. We can find out that, that climbing 14ers is uh, significantly safer than driving to the 14er. Wow. So I have to tell you a Curtis was stupid on a 14er story. There are probably a few of these, by the way. Uh, but the one I thought I would share is North Maroon. A group of us decided to go climb North Maroon, and I took a friend of mine with me who I don't believe had ever done a 14er before. So North Maroon is known for being one of the more technical, more dangerous peaks. Obviously, it was one of the ones listed as a death peak in Colorado. And there's a lot of falling rock, a lot of exposure. Probably not the best first 14er to do. We were near the top and kind of taking an alternate route and we ended up with a, a significant amount of exposure. The we We're on a ledge that was probably three feet wide. And if you look behind you, then you'd probably drop 100 feet or 200 feet before you hit ground. But then there was a tumble of a few thousand feet after that. So significant exposure to be sure. Well, he started to freak a little bit, as people sometimes do. You have to learn to be accustomed to heights and the safety of rock and that sort of stuff. And he froze up, just kind of bear-hugging the mountain on the safe side of the ledge. I knew I couldn't leave him there, but here's where I got really, really stupid. I thought that I had a chance to be a hero or something. I don't understand it. I stepped behind him with my toes on the ledge and my heels in the air. I put my hand on his back and said, just move a little bit farther to the left. Just keep shifting until you clear this spot, which worked. But you all know what I'm getting ready to say, right? I didn't have anything to grab a hold of besides him. And what if he did what some people do when they panic? What if he spun around real fast to try to grab me? This is a common thing when people are panicking, especially when they're drowning. They tend to try to climb on top of their rescuer. And so... Had he done that, I would have gone off. Potentially, he would have gone off too. Luckily, he did not do that. We got through it. We went up the mountain, and then I just thought I broke the number one rule of trying to help somebody in a dangerous situation. I put myself at more risk than he was at to try to coax him up that stupid, 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 dumb, did not need to do that. There would have been a dozen different ways to encourage him to keep going. We could have gone back the way we came from, uh, potentially even found a rope to use. But instead, I put myself between him and the cliff. Dumb, dumb, dumb. Next, skiing and snowboarding. Hey, here's a popular sport. People often think of it as dangerous because everybody knows somebody who twisted a knee or broke a leg or broke an arm, and God forbid, some people die they hit trees, 
you know, they hit each other. And so how dangerous is skiing and snowboarding? Well, I looked up the statistics just for Colorado. Living in Colorado seemed like a great thing to do. It's one of the most popular ski states in the nation. And there are 11 deaths per year on average in Colorado from skiing and snowboarding. And some people might say, well, that's 11 deaths. It wouldn't have happened if nobody skied. But let's see how it adds up. First of all, I want to point out 9 out of 10 of those deaths were from collisions. Watch where you're going, people. (laughs) Watch where you're going. We've all seen it. Someone skiing way too fast, skiing out of control, and some little kid comes out of the woods, and there's a near miss or even a collision. You know, if you weigh 200 pounds, and you're going at 35 miles an hour, and you hit some kid that weighs under 100 pounds, you're going to do some damage. I mean, do the math. That's craziness. So watch where you're going. Ski within your limits. Ski in control. And... uh, Kids and everybody, look uphill when you're intersecting another trail. Nine out of ten of the deaths are collisions. There were 13 million skier days last season. That's crazy. 13 million skier days. And what I did is I was trying to come up with how many skiers is that. Because, you know, when I use the car statistics, we get in cars frequently right? That's part of what increases the risk. We don't just get in a car once in a while. So I thought, well, how can I kind of normalize the data? Well, I looked at that 13 million skier days and I divided it by the average ski season for, for ski areas in Colorado. So the ski season goes usually from the end of November, but I just called it December through the first week of April at most resorts. So on average, that's 128 days. So if you divide those skier days by the number of days, you find out that we're seeing 101,562. So 100,000 skiers in Colorado that make 13 million skier days. And how many people died? Well, if you divide that 11 deaths from 101,000 skiers, that's one out of 10,000. One out of 10,000. So is that a horrible risk? Let's think about that a little bit. That is the same risk as driving to the ski area. One out of 10,000. But keep in mind, keep in mind here, living in the United States gives you a one out of a thousand chance of dying from a medical mistake. (laughs) So skiing is 10 times less risky than living in the United States in general. I know that sounds unbelievable, but go look up the statistics on that medical mistakes. (laughs) It is crazy. It is crazy. But anyway, so I I put skiing and snowboarding as equally dangerous as an activity that almost everyone does universally in the United States, which is use automobiles, right? And by the way, it's also interesting, when you look at automobile deaths, it's it's a point you got to hear. People think, well, it's because of drunk driving and stuff like that. Drunk driving does contribute, but the number one cause of accidents in the United States with vehicles is distracted driving. That's number one. Why? Because we're human. We get distracted and you can't be distracted when you're going 70 miles an hour. You're covering too much distance in too short a period of time. But things that are the the causes of the distractions that are listed, of course, texting, eating, and grooming. I've seen too many ladies putting on their makeup on the way to work. And I've seen too many guys that are trying to get the, the coffee spill off their tie on the way to work. I, I once was in front of one gal who was eating. She had a, a, a big 
giant, looked like 64-ounce cup of, of Coke. And this was a crazy thing. It was so big, it would almost block her, her field of vision. But she was behind me on an interstate, and every time she took a sip out of the straw, her foot thundered down on the accelerator. She would come screeching up on my bumper, and as soon as she took the straw away, she would look back up and slam on the brake. The first time she did it, I'm watching her in my rearview mirror, which means I'm a distracted driver because I need to be looking ahead of me. But the first time she did it, I was like, what was that? And then she reached down for another sip and did it again, almost hit me twice in a row. So you know what I did? I mitigated the risk. I changed lanes. I slowed down. I let her move on. I kind of felt bad, though, because that means that someone else is now at risk because she's going to do it to the next car ahead of her. People, be careful when you drive. We've all done it. I'm guilty. Eating while driving, you know, that sort of thing. But the text on the phone can wait. Use a hands-free kit if you're going to use a phone. But even talking has been shown to be a cause of distracted driving. Talking with someone in the car or on the phone doesn't really matter. I do want to throw out, though, statistics have also shown that the number of people's lives who are saved by cell phones in cars is greater than the number of people that are dying from cell phones in cars. And you may not know that, but it's because people can dial 911 quickly when there's a need for, uh, for people to be helped after an accident. And when you have 40,000 deaths a year and 4.6 million serious injuries in automobiles per year, that cell phone dialing 911 is getting a lot of use and it's saving lives. So great tool, use it appropriately. Like everything else, don't abuse it. But anyway, distracted driving, number one cause of death. Number two cause of death in driving is speeding. Not drunk driving, speeding. Of course, none of you speed. You never drive too fast for the conditions. You never get in a little bit of a hurry right, to get to work or to your play or back home again. None of us ever do that. Second cause, second highest cause of death in in vehicles is speeding. Wow. Third, you guessed it, drunk driving. We got there. Third place, drunk driving, driving under the influence. Um, I don't need to go on about that. We all know better. Don't do it, right? Be aware. Think of other people. In all of these scenarios, think of other people. When we're putting on our makeup, on the way to work, when we're drinking from a Slurpee, when we're spilling coffee on ourselves in heavy rush hour traffic. Is that not just a form of being selfish? We're too concerned about ourselves and even small things. We're creating a massive risk for other people, other people around us, not even just ourselves, but everybody. And so be considerate when you decide that you're going to participate in an activity that makes you a distracted driver. Think about that. Am I just being selfish? What about my kids? What about my wife? What about my future kids? What about the the kids that are in the car next to me? What about the people around me who don't want to go to the hospital and run the risk of the one out of a thousand medical mistakes death? Right? Just a word. Just a word to the wise. Next! What would be next? Adventure sports. Uh, Canoeing and kayaking. Canoeing and kayaking. So it's a water sport, right? This was really interesting to me. I, uh, I was curious how dangerous this really comes out. So in 2016, there were uh, 152 deaths recorded from canoeing and kayaking. 152 deaths from canoeing and kayaking. And we find that 80% of deaths that involve water and boats is from drowning. No surprise there. But here's something interesting. 83% of people who drown didn't have on a life jacket. 
So 80% of the deaths from boating are from drowning, and 83% of people who drown didn't have on a life jacket. What does that tell you there? You put on a life jacket, you mitigate most of the risk of boating. Cool, huh? That's a very simple solution, isn't it? Now we all say, oh, well, I don't want to put on a life jacket. That's uncomfortable. But, um, you know, think about it. Think about it. And here's the funny part. When people get in a canoe, they put on a life jacket. Why? Because canoes tip. People get in a kayak, almost universally, they have on life jackets. And uh, why? Because kayaks tip and flip. It's just the way it is. But guess what? 47% of the fatalities in boating accidents, according to the uh, U.S. Coast Guard, 47% of the deaths are in open motorboats. Not in canoes, not in kayaks, they're in open motorboats. And of course, the majority of those are from collisions. It's from people just ramming things with their boat. Ramming other boats, you know, ramming obstacles. But regardless, it's actually that motorboat where people are least likely to put on the life jacket, and that is where the highest risk by far exists. Hmm, fascinating. Kayaks account for 13% of deaths, and canoes account for 9% of personal watercraft deaths in the United States. So I tried to figure out what the risk factor was, and uh, AmericanWhitewater.org, Jennifer Plyler, she did a study that showed the risk at 2.9 out of 100,000 kayaking deaths. 2.9 out of 100,000, which comes to roughly 1 out of 33,000. So if you are a whitewater kayaker, you're running a 1 out of 33,000 risk of dying doing your adventure sport. Let's go back to the cars again. One out of 10,000 by using automobiles and one out of 1,000 risk of dying from medical mistakes. So what does that mean? It means that you're uh, 33 times more likely to die from a medical mistake than from a whitewater kayak incident. I know that doesn't sound, doesn't sound right, but it is. And again, you are three times more likely to die in a car than you are from a whitewater kayaking incident. And uh, I think there's a reason for that. Whitewater kayakers, as a rule, do a lot to mitigate the risk. Why? Because whitewater kayaking can be really scary. The danger is right in your face. There's no sleeping at the wheel. So whitewater kayakers, they wear helmets. They wear, often, face masks. They wear life jackets. They wear wetsuits and other protective clothing. They're set up to mitigate the risk. And it's working. It's, uh, it's three times safer than driving a car. And you know what? I've often told my kids that whitewater kayaking is the most dangerous activity that I've ever done. Well, as far as adventure sports go, that's probably close to true. But I guess skiing actually has a worse record. But whitewater kayaking felt like the most dangerous to me. It really did. And I have stories about that one too. I got to tell this one. This is a story. It was just amazing. Three of us creek boating in a flooded creek. Uh, I was in the last position, and when I came over this drop, one of my buddies was on the bank, and he says, hey, have you seen the other guy? And uh, I said, no, I haven't seen him. And so I get out, and we're starting to run up and down looking for his kayak, looking for him. I, he just vanished. And then he pops up out of the water. How long was he under there? Three minutes? His kayak got inverted under the drop, he was upside down, and we both boated over the top of him. Didn't even see his boat because it was completely submerged and pinned by the rocks 
in the white water. He was trapped in there. His boat had had crimped down on his legs, and he couldn't get out. So when he finally realized he was going to pass out because he couldn't he couldn't hold his breath any longer, the adrenaline hit, and he pushed so hard to get out of his boat. He did injure his legs a little bit, you know, bruises and and kneecaps pulled <laughs> this way and that and what have you. But he popped out and survived it. Later, we uh, we hooked a four wheel drive truck to the kayak with a pretty stout tow rope like you would use to tow a skier, and we pulled, and the rope broke, couldn't get the kayak out. It was that pinned, and eventually, you know, we did recover the boat. But the point of that is that it's amazing the force of water. It's amazing what can happen, the fluky stuff. Luckily, that day, my friend did not become a statistic, but had his boat pinched his legs just slightly more, the outcome would have been much more dire. But then again... It's three times safer than driving to the whitewater. Wow. Okay, what would be next? You know, we're, uh, we're running out of sports pretty quickly here. We've done mountaineering. We've done skiing and snowboarding. We've done canoeing and kayaking. Uh, we've done road biking. I think we're about to wrap it up, but there's one more that I wanted to look into because people think of this as so dangerous. Skydiving. There are about 3 million jumps per year. There were 21 deaths, and this number came out of 2010. And so the deaths uh, per jump. I didn't want to do the deaths per skydiver, but I want to do the deaths per jump. So every time you step out of an airplane, one out of 152,000. Rough statistic that I was able to come up with when I did the math. It's about 7 out of a million. So one out of 152,000 chance of dying per jump. And so driving a car or riding in a car was one out of 10,000. So that means that riding in a car is 15 times more dangerous than skydiving. That's mind-blowing to me. That's mind-blowing to me. But I'm talking about trained skydivers that are jumping out of an airplane. You know, they have a parachute. They have a backup parachute, the reserve, and they do the they do the sport with a lot of training, and uh, it, it is a high risk sport. There's little room for error. You have to do things right. And here's the crazy thing: most people that die in skydiving, it's not because their parachute didn't open; it's because they're doing tricks too close to the ground. And as they do a trick under canopy too close to the ground, wham! And sometimes you can hit the ground at you know 70 miles an hour. That's enough. That's all it takes. Uh, But there is one that is more dangerous than that, and it is more dangerous than using an automobile. It's even more dangerous than the medical mistake risk. The most dangerous sport that I know of, adventure sport, is base jumping. The deaths from base jumping run somewhere in the order of 1 out of 500 to 1 out of 1,000 jumps. So your risk is 1 out of 500. That's a higher risk than dying from medical mistakes. It's a much higher risk than driving a car or riding in a car. And here's the crazy part. Wingsuiting, which is so cool, wingsuiting has a much, much, much higher death rate than simple base jumping and pulling your parachute. And so it's the wingsuiting deaths that are considered base jumps that are driving the base jumping statistics so high. Um, When you're wingsuiting, you're traveling often at 200 miles per hour, it's difficult to judge at that speed. 
and from that angle, how high you are above obstacles, and part of the thrill of wingsuiting is soaring like a bird over the cliffs as they whiz by below you. Wingsuiters, I, I didn't even get the statistic, but it's pretty, pretty bad. I think that your your chance of dying wingsuiting is, is uh, well, it's much, much worse than one out of 500. So suffice it to say, if you want to know what I believe to be a truly dangerous adventure sport, wingsuiting is it. That said, can you mitigate the risk and still enjoy wingsuiting? Yes. You can use your wingsuit by jumping out of an airplane and wingsuit and then pull your parachute. And then you're back into the same risk factor as skydiving, which is much, much safer than riding in the car. So there you have it, guys. Are adventure sports too dangerous? Should we be in avoiding adventure? What is the cost-benefit ratio of adventure sports? Well, all the ones that I covered today were far safer than riding in a car, except for base jumping and wingsuiting. Those two are truly more dangerous than riding in a car, but isn't that kind of surprising? And keep in mind what I said in the beginning. I really want to make this clear. These statistics include the people that were doing things they had no business doing, doing things while drunk, doing things without training, doing things without proper equipment, doing things in all the wrong ways. And if those numbers could be pulled out of these statistics, I think that we would find that the vast majority of deaths and injuries that result from adventure sports are because of people that are using the equipment in the wrong way, who aren't trained correctly, who are doing stupid things like doing adventure sports under the influence of alcohol or drugs. And that makes all of these adventure sports even that much safer. And like I said, I don't like to use the word safe. Life is not safe. Do you know what the mortality rate for life is? Dumb question. It's 100%, one out of one. Maybe that's the main point here. You have one life to live. You need to live it well. How can you live your life in a way that is joyful, healthy, encouraging, full of community, um, full of great memories, that helps you to be a better person inside and outside of your sport, that can provide you with a lot of opportunities to help others? Uh, How can you live that one out of one life in a way that really matters? And I argue adventure sports aren't all of it. You know, you got to think about the mental, the spiritual, and the physical person. You got to think about your family. You got to think about your friends. You got to think about your community and helping those around you. But adventure sports contribute to those things. I'm a better dad because I mountain bike. I'm a better dad because I mountain bike with my kids. Think about that for a minute. I'm a better husband because I do adventure sports. Because I've learned so much about how to manage crises and how to, how to work in the face of challenges and adversity. Makes me a better husband. It makes me a better employee at the office. And that's the value of adventure sports. Not to mention that it blows off a lot of stress and it's a ton of fun. So how dangerous are adventure sports? Listen, I think that if we do the cost-benefit ratio we find out that adventure sports can be very, very relatively safe, right? Safer than riding in a car. By the way, 
in the show, episode number 246, where I talk about the value of adventure sports. And please, if you didn't take my advice and listen to that one first, go back and listen to it. But I talk a lot about there about how many people are using adventure sports to help their community. And I have one anecdote that I want to share in closing. I learned about an organization today. It kind of uh, opened my eyes. Opened my eyes. Yesterday, I decided to buy a pair of biking shorts. Needed a new pair of biking shorts for mountain biking. Part of using the right equipment, right? So I uh, went to a bike shop and I found some on sale and I paid 60 bucks for these biking shorts. And I thought, oh, I hate to spend that much money, but actually biking shorts can be a whole lot more than that. And I needed them. I bought them. And then today I found out about an organization called Gunny Pack. Gunny Pack. It's a local organization here in Gunnison, Colorado. And what they found out was, through the, the local school system here, that there were kids that were eating meals at school but they weren't getting meals at home over the weekends because of extreme poverty. And you think, how is it even possible in the United States? It happens universally across the United States. I was a teacher years ago. There were kids there that the parents would lie about the children's ages to keep them in school longer because that's the only place they could eat. They didn't get food at home. So Gunny Pack started a nonprofit organization And what they do is they got some backpacks, they fill them up with foods that the kids can easily prepare and eat at home over the weekends, and they identified through the local school staff the kids that probably weren't eating at home. And they give these kids a backpack of food to take home with them on Friday night. It costs about $6.00 to feed these kids for a weekend. Six dollars. I could have fed 10 kids. 10 kids could have had food for a weekend for the cost of my biking shorts. Wow, is that convicting or what? But you know what? That doesn't mean we shouldn't do adventure sports. It doesn't mean we shouldn't spend that money on the tools to do adventure sports safely. It doesn't mean we shouldn't get out there and have some fun. It means we need to do both. Let us remember every time we go to the store and we buy a new accessory for whatever sport it is, that there are other people in this world who need money too. Adventure sports are valuable. They're healthy. It's part of having a healthy life. And I'd like to take every one of these starving kids, and I'd like to make sure that they're fed, that they're clothed, that they are educated, and that then they get the opportunity to get out there and have some fun too doing their adventure sports, and helping others. So let this be a reminder. Every time you're out there doing your favorite adventure sport, let that remind you of others that are in need. Don't be selfish about the safety of others. Don't be selfish about your own safety. You know, pay attention. Keep these sports as safe as possible. But let every single trip doing your favorite adventure sport be a reminder that there are others out there in need who can benefit from what you're doing. And with that, get out there and have some fun. Coming up on the next episode, Anna McNuff is back with Faye Shepard to talk about their recent South American bike tour. Until then, get out and have some fun. One of our upcoming guests, Sarah Uten, traveled 20,000 miles around the world for over four and a half years by rowing, cycling, and kayaking. She's written a book about it and is now producing a film documentary about her journey. 
To see more and to lend her a hand, check out her London to London Kickstarter campaign by using the link in the episode show notes or by searching for Sarah Ooten London to London on Kickstarter. 